Thank you, Paul, for leading that course. It's wonderful to have life in Christ Jesus tonight. Yes, I feel uh, somewhat burdened tonight for a number of reasons. One is this responsibility of sharing this very important subject is too big for me. I don't know, I don't have all the answers. Uh, <clears throat> and secondly, because as Rich said, you know me too well. And also the fact that uh, I suppose I have two children here in the audience and uh, they could say yes, but Papa, you didn't do it that way. But it's a sad day when we can't learn from our mistakes. It's a sad day when we uh, say, well, you know, I failed and and therefore uh, I can't say anything. What I think uh, God would have us to take the mistakes that we've made in the past and to try to help others to keep others from making some of the same mistakes that we made. And if we can do that, the next generation can be blessed uh, because of that. I had thought about reading the passage, the psalm that Rich read tonight. It is vain, except the Lord build a house, the labor in vain that built it. Probably a lot of parents that have felt when they come to our stage in life that uh, they were a failure. They failed. And that's not a very good feeling. Um, <clears throat> failed with these precious gifts that God has given. One thing we need to always remember, and that is that these children come to us with no guarantees. Um, I know there's people that feel like, according to Psalm, I mean Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, is when we train them right, they'll turn out right. That's a guarantee. I don't know how you feel about that. I remember uh, speaking to that, uh, something to related to that one time in a certain audience, and uh, afterward, a uh, young father came to me and said, you know, Eli, you know, that's a guarantee from God. You train them right, they'll turn out right. And I said, uh, tried to say it as kindly as I could. I said, well, about 20 years from now, I'd like to uh, talk to you again. Uh, I don't know if he appreciated that, but I was in their home some time later, and the little girl in the high chair was having a little fit, and uh, he looked over at me, and he said, now, uh, what do you do? And I said, uh, well, I'm in your home. Yes, we don't have any guarantees. And I say to some parents that, that feel uh, like failures, and probably all of us would admit that we have failed, but uh, we daren't let our failures keep us from going on. We have to admit that we failed perhaps and ask God forgiveness. Perhaps we have to ask our children's forgiveness and go on with life. In this big subject, the, the bottom line is that we want to bring our children to come to God and be children of God. That's the bottom line. And, uh, and that's a big job. Tremendous responsibility. 
I've got something here that I, I picked up years ago, and I don't know where it come from. I'm going to read it just to kind of set the stage for what I want to say here tonight. It's called Three Parables. I took a little child's hand in mine. He and I were to walk together for a while. I was to lead him to the Father. It was a task that overcame me, so awful was the responsibility. And I talked to the little child only of the father. I painted the sternness of the father's face where the child would displease him. We walked under tall trees, and I said the father had power to send them crashing down, struck by his thunderbolt. We walked in the sunshine. I told him of the great greatness of the father who had the, made the burning, blazing sun. One twilight, we met the father. The child hid behind me. He was afraid. He would not look up in the face so loving. He remembered my picture. He would not put his hand in the father's hand. I was between the child and the father. I wondered. I had been so conscientious and so serious. Parable number two. I took a little child's hand in mine. I was to lead him to the father. I felt burdened for the multitude of things I was to teach him. We did not ramble. We hastened on from spot to spot. One moment we compared the leaves of the trees, the next we were examining a bird's nest. While the child was questioning me about it, I hurried him away to chase a butterfly. Did he chance to fall asleep? I wakened him lest he should miss something I wished him to see. We spoke of the father often and rapidly. I poured into his ears all the stories he ought to know, but we were interrupted often by the wind blowing of which we must speak, by the coming of the star, out of the stars which we must study, by the gurgling brook which we must trace to its course. And then in the twilight, we met the father. The child merely glanced at him. His father stretched out his hand, but the child was not interested enough to take it. Feverish spots burned on his cheeks. He dropped exhausted to the ground and fell asleep. Again, I was between the child and the father. I wondered I'd taught him so many things. Parable number three. I took a little child's hand in mine to lead him to the Father. My heart was full of gratitude for the gra glad privilege. We walked slowly. We, I suited my steps to the short steps of the child. We spoke of things that the child noticed. Sometimes it was one of the father's birds who watched it build its nest. We saw the eggs that were laid. We wondered later at the care it gave its young. Sometimes we picked the father's flowers and stroked their soft petals and loved their bright colors. Often we told the stories of the father. I told them over and over again. Sometimes we stopped to rest, leaning against the father's tree, trees and letting his air cool our brows, never speaking. Then in the twilight, we met the father. The child's eyes shone. He looked up lovingly and eagerly in the father's face. He put his hand in the father's hand. I, for the moment, was forgotten. I was content. Really. That's our task, to lead the child to the Father. Yes, it's a job too big for us. I think we would all agree, would we not, tonight, that when it comes to training and teaching, that <clears throat> more is caught than taught. I don't think we were aware, and probably most parents aren't aware, often that they're constantly teaching. The question is not, are we teaching or what are we teaching? The, the question is, I mean, no, let me back up. 
The question is not, are we teaching? The question is, what are we teaching? We are teaching. <clears throat> and if it is true that more is caught than taught, then we have to look seriously about our personal lives and about our homes. <clears throat> if more is caught than taught, then we must have godly homes. And if we're going to have godly homes, we're going to have to have good marriages. Fathers and mothers that love each other and love their children and love God. There's a lot of children out there, a lot of young people out there, a lot of people who are confused about life. I say if we're going to have godly homes, we're going to have to have fathers and mothers who love the Lord and who love each other. And so I, that's what I'd like to talk about tonight because I think that's foundational if we want to be able to teach our children right from wrong and teach them about God. Because the Bible indicates in Ephesians chapter 5 that the relationship of father and mother, husband and wife, is to give a picture of the relationship of Christ and his bride, the church. And so what the children see in our homes, how we relate together, is to give them a picture of Christ and the church. So when they hear the preacher say that Christ loved the church and Husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and that the church in turn is, the wife in turn is to submit to the husband as the church is to submit to Jesus Christ. They say, oh, I see. I see, like dad loves mom and like mom responds to dad. That's the way. What kind of picture are they getting? <clears throat> We're living in a world I think we're all aware of the fact that we're living in a world, they tell us that the divorce rate is about 50%, about half. Maybe it's over that now, I don't know. And uh, I've talked to people who have gone through that experience just the other day. And I said, that, you know, with could just hear the, the hurt in his voice when he said it just didn't work out. painful. Even in Christian circles, they're like somebody said, divorces that just never happened. In other words, they're people that are living under the same roof, but really aren't one together. Some years ago, quite a few years ago now, I was asked to have a week of meetings on the home, certain church, a very conservative church. Before I went, I uh, told the preachers that I would be interested in if anybody had any particular questions or uh, something that they would like to have addressed. I thought it would kind of give me a little idea of, of how I should approach the, the meeting. And sure enough, uh, I got a letter from the preachers with a bunch of questions. An interesting thing, and 
uh, was that all these questions came from women. Now, I don't know what that says. Don't think it's only women that have problems. Maybe the only ones that they're meant that they have problems. But it's very obvious that in this very conservative church, Mennonite church, that there were some hurting women. And I suppose hurting husbands as well. And youth are looking on and wondering what this says about the Christian life. Because really, we are what we are at home. And that's really what we are. That's where we, you know, that's where we just are ourselves at home. <clears throat> and uh, I think a lot of young people, as they approach this thing of marriage, they have their dreams, they have their ideals, they have, the, the, you know, they probably saying most of them, that's not going to happen to us. We don't want that to happen to us. What we see out there, uh, even maybe our own parents or other married couples. And uh, it's good to have good ideals. Uh, and, and, you know, I've preached a lot of wedding sermons already my time. And I often ask the couples whether they would like for me to, uh, you know, have suggestion as to what, what they'd like for me to uh, say. And if I've gotten some titles that I didn't know what, what to do with. Uh, indicating that they didn't want their marriage to be like or become what they have seen others to become. One of the titles given to me was Keeping the Flame of Love Burning. Another one was Keeping Marriage Exciting. Now, how do you think they ever figured out that marriage might not always be exciting? I suppose by observation. I'm guessing by observation. They didn't want their marriage to become humdrum. Uh, you know what that means? My dictionary says it's the hum after the drum. <laughs> I've concluded that if as much emphasis we be put on the marriage that's put on weddings, that probably a lot of things would change. You see, I tell young people this. Marriages, you may believe that marriages are made in heaven. A lot of us like to believe that. God had something to do with it. But they've got to be lived down here on earth. That's where you live them. And I tell them, my wife and I have been married almost 57 years. If we have averaged eating together two meals a day, I mean, if, if we average two meals a day, I've eaten at the same table with the same woman 42,000 times. 
I tell you, folks, you better love each other. You got to live it down here. Tonight, I'd like to suggest some foundational truths to have happy marriages. The Bible has a lot to say about human relationships. And, you know, it talks about master-slave relationships, talks about church relationships, it talks about uh, employer-employee relationships. But the husband and wife relationship is the most intimate of all relationships. We have to learn how to get along together. I made the mistake one time of saying that ever since Eve came on the earth, people have had problems getting along with each other. Now, I, uh, I should have said, as soon as there were two people on the earth, learn how to get along with each other. <clears throat> I'd like to suggest a couple ways that I believe the Bible teaches of uh, how to relate to each other as Christians. Principle number one is maintain your relationship with God. I think that's so vitally important. If we're going to have good relationships, then we have to maintain our relationship with God. That's so important. Because our vertical relationship this way with God affects our horizontal relationship this way with each other. In fact, they affect each other. First John chapter 4, uh, let me just read to you what the Bible says about this. First John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. He that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This commandment have we of him that he who loveth God love his brother also. We could insert there, husband or wife, could we not, without then doing any injustice to this scripture, the man say, I love God. and doesn't love his wife. He's a liar. Peter says, when he's talking about the husband and wife relationship in 1 Peter chapter 3, the husbands dwell with your wife according to knowledge, lest your prayers be hindered. It's no wonder that some husbands aren't living victorious lives according to that. Because prayers can be hindered by our poor relationships. <clears throat> Many marriage problems are spiritual problems. And uh, I suppose if people would just, husbands and wives, would just be willing to follow God's direction, that a lot of marriage counselors might have to go out of business for lack of business. Just be willing to do it the way God says to do it. Another one is... This thing of selfishness, being unselfish. Somebody said the opposite of love is not hate. 
The opposite of love is selfishness. There's a lot of truth to that. Oftentimes, when I stop and analyze why I said what I said, why I did what I did, why I reacted the way I reacted, I find it's nothing else but old self taking control. Self is one of our enemies to good relationships. Selfish, when we get selfish. Uh, I looked in the dictionary and I found 140 words with the prefix self. Now, they're not all bad words. But it does say something about how prominent this thing of self is and <clears throat> how that it tends to, to dominate and destroy good relationships when we become selfish. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, it says, Give and it shall be given unto you. Full measure, let me turn to it lest I uh, fail to quote it correctly. Luke 6, 38. <clears throat> give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all shall be measured to you again. Give, and it shall be given unto you. The tendency is to want to wait to give until we're sure we're going to receive. And if we're not going to receive, we're not going to give either. That's the old selfish way. But Jesus said that as Christians, we are to give. That Take the initiative to give. If we wait to give until we receive, it may never happen because that other person may not, we may be doing the same thing. So it'll never happen. A lot of people have even called Christians have never gotten beyond the stage of the prodigal son. Give me, give me, give me, you know. It wasn't until the prodigal son came to the place where he was willing to say, make me, make me a servant. Then he found a life of happiness and satisfaction. We don't find a life of fulfillment in this selfish way of living. <clears throat> Another principle is the principle of non-resistance. Now, <clears throat> some people would say, wait a minute, preacher, you're getting... Uh, you, you're getting uh, that scripture out of context. It's talking about not fighting against your enemy. But I've concluded, and I think you would agree with me, that non-resistance is more than just not going to war. Non-resistance, a true life of non-resistance, is a daily kind of life as Christians. He says in chapter 12 of Romans, return good for evil. That's non-resistant. The person has done something against you, you return good for evil. <clears throat> and so that would, in, a, in this marriage relationship we're talking about, if you feel that love is being withheld, your companion does not love you like you think they ought to love you. 
then you pour it on. I mean, you show love. That's the non-resistant way. Maybe some of you men have had a hard, have had a hard day and you come home uh, uh, kind of, you know, glad to get home and expecting your wife to, to greet you with um, some warmth and love. And you step in the door and she's busy at the stove and doesn't quite give you the, the attention that you thought you would, uh, would like to experience. And so you kind of turn your burner down a little bit, you know, you feel a little cold and, and she senses that. And so she turns hers down a little bit, you know, and the first thing you know, your relationship is going like that. That's what happens. But when you take God's way and return good for evil, then that melts hearts. That's what draws people together. That's what we need. Do it like Jesus did it. I always find it interesting that where we have the very practical ways that the Bible talks about the husband and wife relationship, if you look at the context, in Ephesians chapter 5, look at the context. The first part of chapter 5, before you get to the last part, where it gets them down to some practical ways of husbands and wives relating to each other. First part of the con uh, chapter 5 talks about walking in love like Christ loved. And then in, later on it talks about walking in the light. Not like people who are walking in darkness. But that I suggests to me walking with an openness to each other. And then it says walk circumspectly, that is wisely and carefully. And then it says, be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, wives and husbands. In 1 Peter chapter 3, comes after chapter 2, naturally. And the last part of chapter 2 tells us how Jesus responded to those who did him wrong. Verse 21, for even here in two were you called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Follow Jesus. Do it like Jesus did it. Who when <clears throat> who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now return unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Then he says, likewise, ye wives, likewise, ye husbands, do it like Jesus did. That's the Christian way. The non-Christian way divides, <coughs> separates, and tears down the Christian way, melts hearts, and brings together. A third area is this thing of being a servant, learning the, the joy and the fulfillment of being a servant. And this is something I think, maybe we'll talk some more about that this weekend, but something that that we need to help our children experience is the joy and satisfaction of being a servant rather than being served. That's a selfish way. 
but being a servant of God and servant to each other. <clears throat> In honor, preferring one another, Hebrews, I mean, Romans 12, verse 10. Honor, preferring one another. That is, give the other person preference. Uh, <clears throat> that's one place that both husbands and wives can try to uh, take the lead in in honoring the other person. Jesus said, I came not to be ministered unto. No, that's not why I came. But I came to minister that servant heart that needs to be in the heart, our hearts, that we're going to have good relationship, this thing of serving. <clears throat> to love like Christ loved with a servant heart. That, that not have to, but I want to. Because I want to. Both husband and wife, I think I can say, and I think you'd agree with me, that if both husband and wife both father and mother will do it God's way that we can assure that there will be a happy home. They both do it God's way. But husbands have a part to play, so does the wife. And in Hebrews chapter, I mean in Ephesians chapter 5, it said, husbands are to love. To love like Christ loved. I used to think it's hardly fair that all that husbands have to do is to love and wives have to submit. But when I think about how, how I said that husbands are to love like Christ loved and you see how Christ loved enough to go and give himself on a cross for our sins and then that puts a different picture on this thing of love. It's a self-giving kind of love. A love that sacrifices. This word love in our society, in our world today, is such a misunderstood and misused word. We hardly know what it really means. But in our understanding of the Greek, they had a number of levels of love, different words for levels of love. The highest level, this level that how Christ loved the church, is the agape love, that self-giving love, the love that, that looks for the good of the other person and is willing to sacrifice for the other person. And that's the kind of love that husbands are commanded to love their wives, with that kind of love. <clears throat> and he says, love even as you love yourself. If you love yourself, I mean, if you want the best for yourself, love your wife. There's another word, and that's a phileo. I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But that's the kind of love that's kind of automatic love. It's the kind of love that parents have to their children. Uh, you know, it's just kind of, it's in there. It, uh and then there is this, it's called Eros love. That's that romantic love. 
And uh, in our society, in our world today, this thing of love is so misunderstood. What real love is. So much of it is nothing but selfish love. You see, this evening I can say I love, um, what shall I say, apple pie. I can also say I love my wife. Now, if you saw what I did with apple pie, you might wonder, now, what did he mean when he said he loved his wife? You see, when I say I love apple pie, what I'm saying, I love Eli Yoder. That's what I'm saying. But the world's concept of love is so distorted that we need to remind each other what the Bible says, what God-like, Christ-like love is. Husbands, Love your wife. Wives are to submit to their husbands. That that submission uh, produces an atmosphere in the home that has its effect. I'm convinced of it. If the husband, the father loves, and the mother submits, and they, and by the way, I don't think you can really love without doing some submitting, neither can you submit without really loving. Two are very closely related. But if that atmosphere is there, it produces, I say, if that that uh, kind of relationship is there, it produces an atmosphere of the home that is beautiful, that we sang about there that Paul led when there's love at home. <clears throat> it gives us silent witness to those children as they observe our lives from day to day. They see how father and how mother react and respond when things don't go just right. When there is difficulties. When there is bills to pay. They see how they operate. I say it produces an atmosphere that gives a silent witness. They're teaching the children. Wives are to submit, they are to reverence their husbands. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. And that word reverence has the idea of, um, the Amplified Version says it this way, to notice, regard, to honor, prefer, praise, love, and adore. Pretty big order. Pretty big order. But husbands are to love. You know, few men don't melt under that kind of treatment. And the sad, sad fact is that a lot of immoral women have learned that a long time ago. All you have to do is read Proverbs chapter 7. And you see that immoral woman and how she relates to this man on the street. And it says he followed her like an ox to the slaughter. If we find it hard to love and hard to submit to each other, we need to go back to Jesus. So the question comes, how do you produce this love? that 
draws father and mother together and produces this atmosphere, the home where uh, there is a kind of atmosphere where we can teach our children the godly way. How do you make it come? We need certainly need the help of the Lord, do we not? How do we produce it? First of all, go to the source. First John chapter 4 verse 7 says, God is love. That's where it comes from. This love that enables us to go on loving even though we may have been mistreated or we feel like we're not loved like we think we ought to be. Go to the source. God, love comes from God. That kind of love. When your companion has made you feel bad and maybe has misunderstood you, go back to the source and say, God, I need another infilling of your love to enable me to respond like Jesus would have me to respond. To enable me to be kind even when that person is not kind to me. Go to the source. Take a long look at Jesus. Secondly, I think love comes simply by loving. You see, love is an action word. Love is an action word. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or or uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, or John chapter 13. By the way, I tell young people, if you want to know how real love works, uh, read, uh, remember the 13th, 1 Corinthians 13, Romans 13, and John 13. If you want to know how the counterfeit works, read 2 Samuel 13. That's the story of Ammon and Tamar, that sad story. <clears throat> love comes by loving. <clears throat> too many people, too many young people think of marriage as kind of like, you know, uh, a nice gift wrap box. And you're so excited. And after the wedding, you can open that box and enjoy all the good things that marriage has to offer. Then the wedding day comes and they open the box and it's empty. I mean, it's not some automatic guarantee to happiness. You get out of it what you put into it. <clears throat> Love and you will be loved. You say, well, what about the fact that some, some wives that have very unkind husbands? Maybe aren't Christians even. Or there's some husbands who have wives that are that way. Uh, how can we, be can we say that love and you will be loved? Well, let me read to you a scripture in John chapter 14, verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Verse 20, 
3. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come in unto him and make our abode with him. You follow God, and you will be loved by God. And he said, we'll come in and make our abode with him. A lot of hurting wives, a lot of hurting husbands have found that to be a consolation that, yes, when they followed God, and rather than reacting in the wrong way, rather by taking Jesus' way, by taking the Bible way, that God indeed filled that void in their life, and they were able to go on in life. You will be loved. Furthermore, love comes by knowledge. Getting to know each other, truly know each other below the surface. That takes communication, being able to share. Because I suppose all of us have come, if you are a married person, have come to the marriage with maybe some baggage. And sometimes that baggage can make problems for us. But to really get to know below the surface, knowing each other, love comes by beginning to understand each other. I, as a young person, was critical of my father. I, you know, like some teenagers. And uh, it wasn't until I, in later years, my father began sharing with me some of his experience as a child. His mother died when he was three years old. His father got remarried to a widow lady that had children, and so it was his children and her children, and then later on, their children. And my grandfather, I understand, a very stern person. I began to understand Dad in a way I'd never understood him before because I began to know him below the surface. I saved an article years ago, actually 40 years ago, an article that impressed me that uh, was in the Reader's Digest. It was back when the Reader's Digest was more than pages of advertisements. And the story, the title of the story was Little Johnny Slept Here. It was a story about a man and his wife who were having marriage problems. And uh, once this husband had become successful in his business, she felt neglected and, and uh, she was one of those persons who said that, you know, I, I you know, this thing of being needed and loved is very important to me. Anyway, their marriage was, was falling apart and they decided to go on a three-week trip to try to get this thing. If they couldn't get it back together, they there's just an agreement that they would go their separate ways. And they were on the way home, according to the story. He wanted to stop in where his grandfather's place had been. And they drove into this old house and uh, 
windows were broken out and, and uh, things about falling apart. And uh, <clears throat> he invited her to go in with him, and she said no. She was angry, it was hot in the car, and so he went in alone into the house. And uh, she sat there getting more disgusted all the time. Finally, he came out with a no, no trespassing sign, and he took it and took a pencil and wrote on it, Little Johnny slept here on the back. And she said, I hope you're not taking that thing home. He didn't say anything, just took it over and set it in front of the porch of the old house and went back inside. Finally, she decided to go in and see what's going on. He started telling her about what he, times he would spend at Grandpa and Grandma's house. And he said, you know, here was the old wood, where the wood box was, where I used to feel for Grandma, and, you know, here's was with the table, and here's where I slept, and those kind of things. And, and finally she said this. She said, I, I, I guess I understand this was home to you. He said, no, not really. I'd be here for a couple of days, and then I'd have to go live with Auntie and Uncle for a couple of days. Suitcase was always under the bed, because I'd never know where I would be. One Evening, I heard grandfather on the phone, he said. And he said, okay, you can pick up the boy and uh, I'll come get the calf. So he assumed he was being traded for a calf. He said at uncle and auntie's place, all the children had hooks. My cousins all had hooks with names on top. And uh, I thought we'd be nice. Wonderful to have a hook with my name where I could hang my clothes. So I asked Auntie, I said, can, I found a hook that doesn't have a name on it. Can I put my name there? She said, no, it's no use. You'll be, you'll be gone in a couple of days. I said, I went out and cried until she made me stop. One time I saw my cousin stubbed his toe. And Annie took him up in his arms and told him it's going to be all right. He said, I guess that's what I always wanted. Some place where I could call home. Some place where I could stay. Some place, and as he talked and shared his heart, the experience he had as a child, she felt, realized that her hand had slipped over in her, his hand. And it was a turning point in their marriage because they under, he, she began to understand. Love comes by getting to know each other. Furthermore, love comes by doing. I said a while ago, love is an action word. Maybe husbands, your wife has made you feel bad. And you really don't feel very loving. You feel very kind of sorry for yourself. Do something loving. Just do something loving. Maybe you could go and let me wash the dishes. You say, well, you say, I, I, I want to wash the dishes. But I'd be hypocritical. You really don't want to. Well, maybe, but uh, at least it'd be obeying God, wouldn't it? 
Yes, do something. In some cases, I suppose I'd have to say, give your wife time to get over the shock. She's not used to that. <clears throat> but I believe as Christians, maybe that there's times we need to go look ourselves square in the mirror. Said, I claim to be a Christian. I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I promised that I would love this woman or this man. I promised. And then confess your failure. Ask for forgiveness. Start over. Do something to prove it. Another little clipping I found here some years ago that impressed me about this man who was um, <clears throat> listening to a preacher, and the preacher said that love is a choice. You can choose to love. And he realized that he'd been a selfish husband and that he had hurt his wife with his selfishness. And so they were going on a little vacation, so he decided that he's going to experiment. He's going to try, with the help of God, to be an unselfish husband, a loving husband, for the time period of their vacation. And he said the first thing, he commented about his wife's sweater, and she said, oh, you noticed? And they came to the place where they were going to spend their vacation, and... and uh, he was tired, and she wanted to go walk around the, the lake, and he, now he didn't want to, but he thought, well, I decided I, I'm going to be loving husbands, and so went for the walk. And he said, you know, that week I kept reminding myself I, I, I'm going to be loving husband, and I did some things that ordinarily I would not have enjoyed doing, but he said, you know, the end of the week I just, I just felt good. I mean, I, I enjoyed that Time. But he said there was something happened in the last day. <clears throat> His wife was about ready to leave, and she had a sad look on her face. And he said, uh, honey, did I do something to hurt you? And Because, uh, you know, he tried to be a loving husband. And she said, well, uh, you remember that doctor appointment I had? Yeah, I remember. He said, uh, she said, uh, did, uh, you know, I mean, did the doctor say something to you he didn't tell me? I mean, am I about to die or something? You know, something wrong with me that you've been so good to me? He said, no, honey, you're not about to die. I'm just learning how to live. Just learning how to live. Isn't it true, folks? Isn't it true when we do it God's way? That life begins to have meaning. Not only that for ourselves, but it, it provides the atmosphere for our children to learn what love, true love is. To learn how to get along. To learn some of the things that we want to try to talk about this weekend.
once we're willing to step out and obey God. Let God be responsible to carry out his promises. Our responsibility is just to obey God. Start obeying God in marriage, then can take on a new excitement. Because not all of marriage is going to be that exciting. Like balancing the checkbook. When your wife has failed to fill in one of the times she wrote out a check. Now, it might be exciting, but not the kind. The good, exciting kind. The other kind. My question for us tonight is to think about is what is the next generation? What view are they getting about the relationship of Christ and his bride and what they see in our homes? If you want a new excitement in your marriage, start obeying God. Let him carry out his promises. Many marriages, I'm convinced, are dying simply because of a lack of cherishing each other. And that's one of the promises we made, didn't we? Those of us who got married. That we would cherish each other. That is, consider the other person valuable and important. A lot of wives, I'm convinced tonight, as I read those questions from those women would trade dishwashers and those kind of things for a little cherishing. A little cherishing. Let me read something that I have used different times in weddings. It's called marriage prayer. O God of love, thou hast established marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Thine was the plan, and only with thee can we work it out with joy. Thou hast said it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. Now our joys are doubled, even since the happiness of one is the happiness of the other. Our burdens now are halved, since when we share them, we divide the load. Bless this husband. Bless him as a provider of nourishment and raiment. Sustain him in all the exactions and pressures for his battle for bread. May his strength be her protection, his character be her boast, and her pride. May he so live that she will find in him the haven for which the heart of a woman truly longs. Bless this loving wife. Give her a tenderness that will make her great, a deep sense of understanding and a great faith in thee. Give her that inner beauty of soul that never fades, that eternal youth that is found in holding fast to the things that never age. Teach them that marriage is not merely living for each other. It is two uniting and joining hands to serve thee. Give them a great spiritual purpose in life. May they seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the other things shall be added unto them. May they not expect that perf perfection of each other that belongs alone to thee. May they minimize each other's weaknesses and be swift to praise magnify each other's points of comeliness and strength and see each other through a lover's kind and patient eyes. Now make such assignments to them on the scroll of thy will as will bless them 
and develop their characters as they walk together. Give them enough tears to keep them tender, enough hurts to keep them humane, enough failure to keep their hands clenched tightly in thine, and enough success to make them sure they walk with God. May they never take each other's love for granted, but always experience that breathless wonder that exclaims, out of all this world, you have chosen me. Now when life is done and the sun is setting, may they be found then as now, still hand in hand, still thanking God for each other. May they serve thee happily, faithfully together, until at last one shall lay the other in the arms of God. I believe that probably weddings would take a lot more serious be a lot more serious if people would realize that yes marriages do have beginnings but they also have endings and that will happen to all of us who are married sometime or other there'll be an end the reason we couldn't be here last weekend like was scheduled because I was one of those places sharing where the one had to lay the other in the arms of God. There was an ending. And that's the thing we need to think about to realize that we want to live our lives in such a way that when that happens, there will not be regrets. And furthermore, that our children will be able to see as long as we live together, father and mother loved each other. And that gave a clear testimony that for a Christian, it is possible. It's possible to live together as human beings because Christ's love is in our hearts. May God bless you, fathers and mothers, in your relationship together and in your homes as the children observe your lives. I'll turn the meeting back over to Rich.